0: Hello, and welcome to the Stories About Autism podcast. If this is your first episode, just to give you a quick intro, my name's James, and I'm the dad of two boys, Tommy and Jude, and both of them were autistic. And earlier this year, I decided to start this podcast, where I get to talk to different people, and they share their own story about autism. So I get to speak to parents of children with autism, autistic adults, and professionals who work with the autism community as well. If this isn't your first episode then thank you so much for coming back. This is season 2, episode 2 and I had some really good response from episode 1. So if you haven't listened to it yet, please make sure to go back and check it out. Um I had to thank you for all the messages and comments I got. I've really thought you'd enjoyed my chat with Nicole and it really seems that you did. This week I'm really excited to be bringing you my chat with uh, Victoria Hatton who who fits into a number of different categories for my, for my guests? Um, firstly, she uh, has, has been a teacher um, since she left university and specialising in autism. So she's worked in uh, special needs and mainstream school. Autism was her passion and that's what she studied. And so she's had lots of experience with, with different therapies and ways of teaching, shall we say. Then a few years ago, her, you know, I'm sure. As she admits, her world was sort of turned upside down when her daughter had uh, received an autism diagnosis. And so this week we get to see sort of the world of autism through a parent's eyes and through a teacher's eyes, which I think is is great Um, because I know sometimes parents feel like teachers can't relate and I know uh, teachers can sometimes feel that they can't get what they're trying to do across to the parents of the kids that they work with. So I think it's really interesting, and you know Victoria even uh, shares some of how her views changed. You know, from from approaching autism as a teacher to approaching it as a parent, and how it's given her a much more rounded and uh, improved way of dealing with things. I think. So we get to talk about lots of different things from Victoria's studies and what she learnt there as a teacher to the early stages of diagnosis with her daughter. Um, and then we really focus on the school system and look at receiving that sort of educational health and care plan, how to get that in place, what to do if school's not working, uh, and some really good strategies and ideas to, to help with with school and, and with your, your child in general. So I'm sure that you're going to find a lot of useful information from our chat together, I hope you do anyway. <laughs> As always, if you enjoy the episode, please, please, please tell your friends. Send me a comment or a message. It's lovely to get some feedback and know what's good and bad about the episodes. And if you listen to it on iTunes, please could you leave a review there as well because that's what helps more people get to see and learn about the podcast. I've got some really good guests coming up in the next few weeks, so make sure to subscribe. Uh, There's, you know, again be covering sort of all the different angles from autism professionals to parents to autistic individuals themselves. So some really great stories coming up. Anyway, here's my interview with Victoria. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, Victoria, hello. Hello. How are you? Good, thank you. How are you? I'm really good, really good. Thanks for coming on and taking the time to chat with me today.
1: No problem at all. Thank you for inviting me.
0: So... Do you want to give everyone a little intro into into you and, and your life?
1: Okay. Um, I'm Victoria, mum to two children. My eldest um, has an Asperger's diagnosis that she's had since she was just over two and a half. She's now 11 and just started secondary school. But alongside that, I'm an autism specialist teacher. Um, I vlog over at Starlight and Stories and I've just written my first book about raising a child with autism.
0: You have and I was lucky enough to read that book over the summer after you uh, sent me a copy. It was uh, yeah, really really interesting read which I wrote a post about and we'll talk about that in a bit more detail later but one of the reasons I was really keen to to chat to you and one of the reasons I really enjoyed your book is because you are or you were a teacher first before sort of you became a parent as well so you've kind of experienced autism from from both sides really haven't you?
1: Yeah definitely it's always been something that was an interest of mine right from being six or seven when I had two children come in on what was then called integration to my primary school I just kind of fell in love with special needs teaching and always knew it was it was what I wanted to do. Probably my first real in-depth contact with autism was during university when purely by chance I ended up volunteering on an ABA program and an options program at exactly the same time with kind of no concept that there was any controversy involved in either of them (laughs) or, or just how different they would be. And that kind of, I suppose, has been my my formulation into teaching, really, the kind of mixture of both of them. And I had no idea that they, they shouldn't be mixed until relatively recently in the kind of online world where there's massive controversy surrounding both of them. And, you know, all this kind of hoo-ha, follow one theory and don't follow another. I guess from there, I've always just taken little bits of everything and put it together and to make what fits best For each individual child without knowing that that kind of wasn't the done thing, I guess, really. Then I went from there to teach in private schools because at that time you couldn't become a special needs teacher unless you had two years mainstream experience. So I went off taught in private schools for three years before I had my daughter and then took a career break to have her. And then the rest, as you say, is history. From there on <laughs> in, it's been autism, autism, autism yeah. in the rest of my life, home and school. <laughs>
0: so so going back to university, so you already had in mind that you wanted to be a special needs teacher.
1: I did, yeah. yeah. It, it was always something I wanted to do. I, I did a BA because I didn't know whether I wanted to do primary or secondary, but a BA with theoretical education as part of it. So I was really keen to kind of, see both sides if you like early years right through to secondary and did kind of a whole range of voluntary work in special schools and in home programs and lots of different ways whilst I was there to try and kind of figure out whereabouts in the kind of scheme of things I fit I guess.
0: Yeah and so like you said you, you know you volunteered at university and got exposed to these two completely different set of ideas I guess. Would, do you want to just give a brief description for, for people who might not know what the difference between ABA and options is.
1: Yeah sure so ABA stands for Applied Behavioural Analysis which often gets quite a lot of bad press and I think I was just quite lucky that the programs that I were on were very moderate, the parents were very moderate and we did lots of repetition and we did lots of teaching of skills. Both of the boys that I worked with were non-verbal and they were brothers two years apart and we did lots of kind of teaching them how to walk different ways because they'd become very fixated in only walking one way out of the house, and and kind of lots of useful things really. And mm. um, there was no, none of the big focus on look at me and the eye contact and all of the things that you kind of hear as being derogatory about ABA. It just wasn't my experience of it. I'm not saying it doesn't happen because obviously there are, there are places it did, but in terms of the programs that I worked on it was just a very structured way of teaching new skills to young children who didn't have the language skills to necessarily be able to pick them up in other ways and I guess as someone who'd only seen perhaps not brilliant practice in in my local special school and children who kind of were just kind of being left really to their own devices without kind of what you see now in terms of intensive interaction and all of the great practice that I've seen since. It kind of was revolutionary to me that actually, you know, there were ways you could teach these skills. We had a great time. We gave the boys twizzers. We ran around at the park. There was none of this kind of concept of being stuck inside a room. So Mm. I had a very positive experience, I guess, in relation to what lots of people do or think of as ABA. In terms of the options programme, that was almost the polar opposite because the parents that were running that programme were much more stricter and much kind of much more dogmatic in terms of sticking to the kind of real principles of the approach. And we spent lots of time just kind of locked in one single room with the child, very much following the child's lead. But I guess my issue with it at the time was that I felt like we weren't doing anything real, you know. Yeah. Um, and both have, both, as I say, have had a huge impact on me. You know, I've I've spent a lot of time getting into characters with children ever since. And, you know, we've, I've been the angry wolf from Minecraft to get work <laughs> done. I, You know, I've still got one young lady who I call her the Queen or Tinkerbell or whatever I need to to get maths done in the morning and we have a great time and pretend she's doing her accounts in the palace and all kinds of things. (laughs) You know, so I've certainly taken things on board from it, but my initial experience of it perhaps was less positive than it could have been in a different setting and run in a different way.
0: Right, okay. So, yeah, it, it sounds like you at a very early stage got exposed to, to two very different ways of teaching
1: yeah yeah I did and and I think I think probably it was more interesting because I really honestly had no concept of the fact that either were controversial or either couldn't go together because the internet was still in its very early stages yeah. and you know it, it just kind of wasn't in my Awareness. The only thing I was interested in doing was kind of looking at different approaches to think how I could make the most difference to children in the future. I had no kind of political agenda about it, and and still very much don't. It's um, and it's something that that really baffles me when I hear people get so het up about various approaches and you no, know, say, saying this one is the best, whichever it is, because there isn't always a best. It's about what's best for the child sat in front of you at the time and how they need to learn at that particular time in their lives and that kind of ebbs and flows as time goes on doesn't it there's not kind of there was a magic wand we'd all be you know have these gloriously happy children who who were being the best versions of themselves they could be all the time rather than anxious or whatever else we we sometimes see when we don't necessarily get it as right as we could because we haven't found the right method for that particular time in their lives
0: yeah and I I think you're right it does change like I think in the early days definitely you know I'd have loved the magic wand to <laughs> to find what was the best method or best uh, teaching practice that would work for, for Jude and Tommy you know but as you said it not only is it different for each child it's also it changes over time.
1: Yeah yeah definitely and you know what what works for a highly verbal fourteen, fifteen-year-old is very different to what might work for a non-verbal two or three-year-old, yeah. and I think sometimes we get caught up into autism strategies, <laughs> and and it, one size just doesn't it just doesn't fit all, does it? Just like with any child, one size doesn't doesn't fit.
0: Yeah, that's right. Okay, so then you finish university, and you said you went to work in a private school for a few years.
1: I did. I taught in, um, in in two private boarding schools, one in Cambridgeshire and then one in Kent and really, really loved my time there in, in a very different way. And I think that really helped me kind of formulate my subject teaching, I guess, and really realise how much I love teaching writing and how much I love teaching reading. And I kind of read every children's book going to make sure that I, I knew what I was doing. And I think Sometimes I look back now and think, you know, actually, that was totally different to anything I did kind of before or after. But actually, in its own way, it taught me a lot because it taught me kind of, it taught me the subject matter that underpins the kind of strategy part of what I teach now, I guess. And it gave me the mainstream experience, which at the time I thought was completely pointless and completely (laughs) ridiculous. And I didn't mind who listened to me complain about it because it very definitely wasn't what I wanted to do. But going back now and advising kind of mainstream teachers on strategies and on things to do in their classrooms, I think I would have found that much harder had I not had that three years mainstream experience. So as much as it kind of pains me to say it, it, it probably was a good thing for me in the long run. It's
0: funny how life works like that sometimes, isn't it?
1: <laughs> it definitely is, yeah. <laughs> um, then I left to have my daughter, and when she was tiny, I taught baby signing up and down the country, which was kind of a bit of a throwback to my school days when I'd learned British Sign Language to communicate with my best friend who was deaf. And actually he spoke, but his parents didn't. They signed, they were both deaf as well. And I felt really rude when I went round for tea, not being able to kind of communicate with them. Oh. So I learned British Sign Language to communicate with them. And then when Beth was tiny, I, I just started teaching a local baby signing group because I couldn't find one and wanted yeah. to do it with her. And it kind of grew a little bit from there. And I taught other people how to do it because they'd come and watch and say, oh, but we want to do it. And, and it just kind of spread a little bit which was in hindsight really, really lucky because whilst we were doing that, I began to see really quite quickly that nursery wasn't working very well for her at all. Um, she was an only child. And um we'd always kind of spent lots of time around children because I was only working part-time. So we'd go to baby groups and we'd go to music sessions and on one thing and another. And I'd say until she was two, It just kind of stopped, really. We went back after the summer holidays and she would scream to go into a room. And looking back now with hindsight, it was because the class program had changed. So we'd gone into a new term and the songs were all in a different order and the dancers at Baby Ballet were all different. And suddenly in the back of my head, things were starting to tick. And I was thinking, you know, am I just imagining things? Is it just a phase as you do? Because I already had the background knowledge to know that that autism was a possibility with the things that were kind of coming up and that I was seeing. We'd go into a cafe for dinner and sit at a different table to the one we'd sat at the time before and all hell would break loose. Um, And I guess nursery, she only went to nursery one morning a week and they were very much kind of, no, she just needs to spend more time with other children. You know, you're imagining this, et cetera, et cetera. And I think the final straw for me was going to pick her up one day at nursery. And she would literally stood in a corner and screamed for an hour because they'd made her wear wellies. And she wore wellies fine at home. Wellies weren't an issue. She liked wellies. But the concept of wearing them at nursery and she wore shoes for nursery was too much. Yeah. And I think at that point I knew, you know, I was like, enough. I'm, You know, I know more than you do at this point and i'm and i'm not gonna listen anymore so we initially went for a private diagnosis and i think primarily because she was exceptionally bright she could talk the hind leg off a donkey in her two-year check the health visitor, so it's looking back now should have been a red flag but at the time, I just thought, you know, she was my child genius. had been astounded because she'd known that a, a bird in the book was a flamingo. <laughs> 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 and I'm thinking, mm, yeah. But at the time, you know, you don't question it, do you? You just think, wow, isn't she clever? And the health visitor was walking out he's like, wow, she's incredible. Um, and none of <laughs> none of us questioned it or thought about it in the slightest. So, yes, yeah, so I went for a private diagnosis because, to be honest, I thought if I went into the GP with this kind of highly verbal highly articulate two-and-a-half-year-old, they would probably laugh me out of the door. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So we went to Sprout Diagnosis with a lady who specialised in girls on the spectrum. And to be honest, I I went into it expecting her to say, you know, I can see what you're saying, but I think you need to give it more time and see what happens. And within two hours, she'd said, no, I can see what you're saying. And it is autism. And I think you should pursue a diagnosis further. So we did. And again, I went to the appointment having heard all these stories, because by then Facebook was was a reality in life and not kind of my early autism days where the internet wasn't there. You know, people talking about how hard it was to get a diagnosis. And I'd kind of expected, again, to be sent away and told to, to come back later when she was older. So it was a bit of a shock, really, when they kind of when they turned around and said, no, we're we're giving her a diagnosis now. And she wasn't quite three then. But I guess in hindsight, I mean, at the time, my my knowledge was primarily around um, nonverbal children with autism. And and I had much less kind of knowledge of verbal little ones with autism. So now when I look back, I think, actually, you know, I get why. Because she could, she at the time, she could put a Disney tune on, any Disney tune from any film, and within the first two beats, (laughs) she would tell you the song and the film it was from. (laughs) (laughs) And again, at the time, you know, we we kind of thought this was just genius behaviour, you know, look at our wonderful child. and And she is, you know, I mean, Beth has completely astounded us all so for anyone sitting in the early days kind of worrying from the from the two and a half year old that was physically sick the night before she went to nursery until she went to school um she didn't want to talk to anyone apart from us she hid under her pram when you went out she screamed for four hours the day I made her wear her school pinafore for the first time because pinafores were for eating you know and I, I really wondered how on earth we would ever get through primary school and and it hasn't always been easy, you know. I mean, at six, she lost vision in one eye through anxiety. Oh, wow. And there have been times when it's been really, really hard, even with the kind of strategies that I've had. But we've been really lucky. She's, she went to a fantastic primary school bounded into school in year six to do her SATS, which would have been unimaginable to any of us that she would ever, you know, get through the door with that anxiety on Sats Day. Because waffles were promised, you know? Waffles <laughs> waffles transcended all else.
0: That's that's a good way to, <laughs> to <laughs> So to
1: get any the sats teachers done. out there, make sure you get waffles on Sats morning. It really does make a difference. And um, you know, and she's just started secondary school and again we had this kind of oh my word, how on earth is she going to survive at secondary school? She'd gone from a tiny village primary school of 50 children, where academically we've, we've never had any worries, but where socially and emotionally, you sure. know, there were often times they had to kind of prop her up, but they all knew her and, and all was good. And I honestly can't believe how well she settled in secondary school. So for those of you that are year six parents who are kind of trawling secondary schools at the minute, It really can work. I I honestly cannot believe we had a hellish summer as she worried about all the changes and the transitions. But within two days of being there, she fell in love with it. She loves the structure, the fact that the timetable never changes, the fact that she knows which teacher will be in which room at which time. She loves the extracurricular activities because she knows who'll be running them and the fact there'll be people there from her year that she knows. And she has completely and utterly thrown herself in there. And I can honestly say that all those fears we had when she was younger, she has completely and utterly astounded us and at every step of the way she wows us with just how capable and how resilient the things that go on around her are. That's
0: amazing. It sounds like she's, like you said, she's come a a real long way from from those early days.
1: She really has. And and really through her own sheer blooded mindedness, really. I always say that she's got both of our stubborn genes uh, mixed together. And if she's determined she's going to do something, she's going to do it no matter how hard it is for her. And, you know it isn't always plain sailing she really struggles with germs and eating out is something that that causes her a lot of anxiety but she makes herself do it and I think not because we make her but because she makes herself she's Mm. determined that you know she wants to do these things and she wants to have friends and she wants to go places with them and there are times when she will sit at home and she'll be really worried for hours and hours before something goes on and non-uniform days and things like that cause a huge amounts of anxiety but she battles through it and she does it through her own accord and I really really couldn't be prouder of the young woman that she's turning into and I'm genuinely excited and I would not have said this two months ago <laughs> but I am now genuinely excited to see what secondary school will bring and what she'll make of it because she just throws herself into everything with such gusto
0: It's lovely you can tell just how excited you are and, and how proud <laughs> you are of her. it's brilliant
1: I am because I didn't I honestly I thought secondary school was going to be the kind of unmaking of us all because yeah. 2,000 children is a lot of children and you know I've seen it with my with my teacher head on it's it's really hard to get it right in secondary school yeah. and I think even with even re- with kind of a few really well-meaning staff in school unless the whole teaching body buys in to inclusion fully it's really hard to make it work and I think we have just struck gold <laughs> by some major fluke and found a place that has and I think you know I guess that would be my big advice to anybody going out looking at schools really really follow your gut and I think that's a lesson i've learned the hard way because i didn't get it right the first time which was why beth ended up with the vision loss and i think i'd looked on paper and i'd looked on officer reports and i'd done all the things that as teachers you're taught to do to analyze whether a school was a good school and actually none of it worked because they were brilliant schools they just weren't the right school for her and i think if you're going out looking at a school That is the biggest piece of my combined kind of mum and teacher advice that I can give anybody is just to look at it with your gut and think, will my child be happy here? And it doesn't matter what the school's Ofsted report says or what the results are or even to some degree what another parent says, because their child isn't your child. It's about looking and thinking, can I envisage them here? Will their anxiety levels be as low as I can make them here? because if they will then that's going to be the best place for them to learn
0: i 100% agree going back to when uh, i was looking at schools for jude years ago you know we we looked at i don't know five six different options and the one we chose it was 100% the gut feeling of just yeah the other schools might push him in a different way or might but this the one we chose was we really thought that was the school that would make him happy and yeah. going through the process again with Tommy, who's completely different, we we did end up choosing the same school, but it came down to the, the same decision in the end of which school's going to look after him, make him less anxious, and just would feel really comfortable every day sending him there.
1: Yeah, because that that's what it's about, isn't it? You don't want them going through childhood miserable, even if they come out with better results. Yeah. Because ultimately, that's not what it's about, is it? It's about learning to to kind of be in the world and to be allowed to be the person that you are and I think I'm really lucky that certainly the second primary school we found for her really encouraged her to be her and to be open about her and the whole school all her friends knew she had autism and it's made her very very open about it and very proud about Mm. it and woe and betide you know if you go into a school and there's posters up saying this is a dyslexia friendly school and autism isn't mentioned then you're going to get an ear bashing from Beth so you know if you are listening out there and you've got school without autism posters up get them out because there will be children on the lookout for them
0: okay so going back to those those early days sort of immediately after the private diagnosis and, the, and then the, the secondary one as well do you remember how you felt when it first when you first realized that that she was autistic.
1: I do. I mean I knew, but I think yeah. even when you know you're not prepared to hear the words. Mm. And I and I say that to every set of parents I talk to who are going through the diagnosis process. I say, you know, even if you know, you're still allowed to be sad when you're told. And equally, you're still allowed to be relieved and think, mm. you know, it's okay because we know what's going to happen. And I think it was probably a mixture of all of them. It was kind of a bit of relief that I wasn't going mad and that now I could start putting strategies in place to help her. Yeah. It was a fear I guess that I didn't know how to do this, that I how could I make sure I put enough in place to enable her to be the bee, the her that she wanted to be. And I think at that time we were essentially trapped in the house a lot of the time because Because if we went into a room with kind of two or three people or more than that, she became very anxious. She would cry. She would try and escape from the room. And we became pretty restricted in terms of the activities that we did. And I was very keen that, that that wasn't the life I wanted for her long term. Yeah. But I didn't know how to do it, and I—I still remember. I still remember we—we we were told basically we went into a room as so often with so many people, and they said she has autism, and then they said bye, <laughs> and, and shoved us out of the room. Yes, yeah, and pretty, I remember, pretty much what happened to us. It? <laughs> it, it's just amazing when you think about it, and I—I remember standing outside in the street with my mum who'd gone with me, and my mum looking at me and saying. What are you going to do now? <laughs> As if I had the the magic wand and the magic answers. <laughs> cause I was the teacher; I was supposed yeah. to know. And um, I just remember looking at her, going, "I don't know." <laughs> and and she's always said, you know, I looked at you then and, I, and and how lost you were, and I thought, how must people who don't have a background in mm. autism feel when they're when they're told that news? And I think that's what's driven me kind of ever since, really, to to try and alter that a little bit.
0: But that's what I was going to say. You know. It's comforting in a way to know that you you felt exactly the same as as most other parents, even though you you had a lot more autism knowledge and experience than than you know say I would have done. But you felt exactly the same. Like, what
1: am I going to do? You know what? Yeah. What next? And I think because because at school you have a team of people around Mm. you to help you make those decisions. You know, if I if I'm working with a student, then I'll sit and talk with colleagues and I'll sit and talk with their parents. And together we'll come up with a strategy or a plan or decide what the priorities are to work on next. Whereas suddenly I was stood there with this tiny two and a half year old girl who was completely different to any other child with autism that I'd ever worked with before. And everyone had been kind of like, you know, you've got this, go away, do it. <laughs> and I just didn't at all. And I I kind of, I read everything yeah. there there was to read, like, Everything, anything that mentioned girls and autism or toddlers and autism, that was it. It, it got home very quickly <laughs> on my bookshelf. But so much of what I read just wasn't relevant. It was either focused on nonverbal toddlers or on older, and I'm talking much older, kind of 9, 10 plus year old girls on the spectrum. Because there just wasn't the kind of knowledge there, even 10 years ago, that there is that there is now. And the thing that made the biggest difference to us was absolutely nothing to do with anything I read or I did. And I'm quite open about that. We went on a Disney cruise because Disney was best special interest and still is best special interest all these years later. We stayed. We were really lucky. It was it was the first two years that the ship had come to England. So if anyone's looking now at the astronomical prices and thinking, how did she afford this? We were just very lucky in our timing. They were trying to kind of attract people and the prices were ridiculously cheap to the point where you could do kind of a ten night cruise for the same price as three days so where, in Disneyland Paris. Where did Paris. this cruise go? Just around the Med, oh, okay. but it had Disney characters on the on board, which is the exciting bit. So yeah, it just went around the Mediterranean, and we we, we eventually did two back to back cruises, and it was that that made the huge difference because she in those two weeks she learned how to play. Okay, she played with Mickey. She rode on Goofy's back. And all these characters that she loved were suddenly there playing with her and teaching her how to play. We've got photos of her making campfires with them, and we have photos of her lining up her little Disney characters with characters. And she just kind of learnt that people weren't scary. Yeah. And when we came back, kind of something had shifted, really, and we could... I'm not saying in any way, shape, or form it was a cure, whatever that means anyway, but it... it it had lowered her anxiety levels to the point where we could reach her and where we could introduce new things without her seeing those as a threat. It's
0: really interesting, like you said, that you know, she changed completely and it was around something that she was really interested in to begin with.
1: And I think that, again, that's kind of the third component, if you like, in what has made me the teacher I am today. So I had the ABA, I had the options, and then I saw her kind of completely immersed in her special interest for two weeks and I was like wow that has made such an enormous difference in her life and I think if I get a new student now that's often what I do to start with especially if it's a student that's kind of been out of school for a long time or someone that's perhaps a writing refuser or someone that just isn't used to doing kind of academic work or being in a school situation. If I can make what I'm doing as focused on their special interest as possible, then I often see results that I wouldn't otherwise have Hmm. managed to see because it relaxes them to the point where they realize that I'm not a threat, where they realize I think what they think is important. And they're interested and engaged to kind of embark on some of the more difficult things because they can see that that's balanced out with their interest so whether it's that we're talking about minecraft but we're writing a story about steve from minecraft or if it's a special interest about football and we're creating our own fantasy football team or whatever it might be if i can get special interests in there then i will do because it means we all enjoy the lesson far more mm. than we would battling it in a much drier way
0: i mean i guess that applies to to all the children you work with right whether they're verbal non-verbal
1: Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I just think special interests are so, so powerful that we're kind of missing a big trick, if you like, if we don't, if we don't use them and if we don't engage with them, because they lower young people's anxiety levels so much. If we can incorporate them in whatever it is that we're trying to teach, then we're doing them, hopefully the best service we can, rather than giving them a disservice by kind of using them as a carrot which you so often see okay let's do this and then you can have access to your special interest it kind of makes the work element seem like the bad part whereas if we can incorporate the two together and make the work part of their special interest that then makes them see themselves as successful interested learners in a way that you just can't do yeah if you just use it as a carrot, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. So what? what's uh? What's some of your daughter's special interests?
1: Disney has always been number one up there. We've had Harry Potter, which was a good one. Uh, my least favourite personally was Scooby-Doo. If I ever have <laughs> to see that dog again, it will be too soon. <laughs> um, but yeah, Disney has been pretty much the persevering one over the years with, with the odd detour. At the minute, Master Chef is creeping in there, oh, really? which is quite nice because I'm getting yeah. lots of nice, interesting things being cooked. I can, you know, I can, <laughs> I can live with that one.
0: <laughs> you mentioned earlier about it was quite unique for for Claire to get her diagnosis so young, especially being you know as being a girl. It's it's quite rare for girls often get diagnosed much later.
1: Yeah, it really is, and I think if we'd have been waiting for kind of school or nursery to spot it it probably wouldn't have happened. But because I'd kind of flagged it up and then when we took her for the assessment, she she did fulfil all of the criteria really, really obviously to the people in front of her. So she was very rigid back then in her thought process. Her language was very, very adult, even at two and a half. And I think perhaps I hadn't realised just how adult until I look at my now two and a half year old son and think, wow you know there's (laughs) such a difference between them his his language is you know very normal for a two and a half year old but certainly nowhere near what hers was at two and a half where she could have very articulately told you you know the ins and outs of every disney film you you would have ever wanted to know about so yeah she they they had an assessment with salt an assessment with um, a pediatrician an assessment with an autism specialist teacher and i think We were just lucky that the panel that we got obviously recognised in her the signs that they saw. But I guess my biggest shock was that led to then a total end of services. Because she was so little and because there was only her, (laughs) that meant there was nothing. There were no social skills groups. When when we'd go along to kind of even things at our local autism charity, you'd either be talking kind of 11, 12-year-old highly verbal children or very young non-verbal children and there was no kind of peer group for her anywhere Mm. that I looked and it wasn't until uh, about three four years ago that another girl joined her school and she met her first other girl with autism and they are like two peas in a pod which I know isn't kind of necessarily the case for for my teaching work but for the two girls it's been absolutely brilliant there's three years between them But I think they can both see so much of the other in each other. And it's been really nice for them both to have that validation of the fact that actually they're not on their own. There isn't just them out there. And I think for children in mainstream schools, it can so often feel like that, that actually they are the only one. Even if there are other children in the school, quite often it's not advertised if you like so they kind of go through life thinking there's there's only them that finds that particular thing difficult or there's only them that worries in that way so to have that kind of camaraderie and friendship has certainly made a huge difference even though it did take a long time coming because there just wasn't anything back then that was that was right for her
0: yeah i can imagine how how did you first ever discuss autism with her
1: uh, now that wasn't the way I would plan to or recommend to discuss okay. it with anybody else. <laughs> we, because of the issue she was having with her eye, she she was six and a half at the time, so she was she's young for her year, and she was in year two at school. And literally, she woke up one one kind of Saturday morning and couldn't see out of one eye and could only oh. see kind of out of half the other eye. And we ended up taking her to, within two weeks, she saw 10 different specialists because they couldn't figure out what was going on. And initially we were told it was either a brain tumor or epilepsy because there was nothing else that could cause it. And kind of the longer it went on, they were like, it's not epilepsy (laughs) Uh, because it was just going on and on and on and we couldn't get it to shift. And eventually it came out that it was it was anxiety related, but it took getting to kind of a really high consultant after having brain scans and one thing and another for them to determine that actually there wasn't a physical cause. But during that time, the word autism had been mentioned so frequently in conversations right. with doctors that she came home and said, what's autism? And kind of a, an off the cuff answer had to be developed. <laughs> um, and we sat in our living room and told her. And I think it was perhaps easier for us than than for some of the families because I've got dyslexia. So we sat there and I said, you know, my brain works differently in this way and your brain works differently in that way. And that's good because it would be really boring if we were all the same. And who wants to be boring anyway? Um, And she took it really, really well and and always has. It's never been something that she's seen as a negative. Um, She came home, I don't know, probably about six months ago and said, such a buddy at school asked me today what it feels like to have autism. She said, I told her not to be so ridiculous. I said, How would I know what it's like to have autism? I just have it. She said, What would you say if I said what's it like to ha- to not have autism? <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's <laughs> so, a brilliant
1: answer. So she's very matter of fact about it. Yeah. And very um yeah, very proud that, that that's who she is. Um and yeah, we've been very lucky that we've not had a lot of the kind of issues that perhaps other families have as to kind of getting used to the idea of that diagnosis. But I do think part of it is that she has known since she was so young. She can't sure. remember now not knowing. And whether, you know, I would have told her so young, given the choice, I don't know, if I'm honest. You know, now it's something I advocate families. Families doing and telling younger because we've seen the impact that that can have and through work I've seen the impact of children not knowing until they're mm. much older and I think that is much harder for them to to take on board when they're kind of 14 15 16 and suddenly find out they've got a diagnosis I think that's harder for them to to take on board at that stage than a kind of six seven year old who is very much more matter-of-fact about the world and you know that's fine I'll just do whatever.
0: Oh. Would you have any tips for families on how best to to try and sort of approach that subject?
1: I think I usually tell parents to start off just talking about differences. So, And I, and I kind of suggest doing it over kind of about a three-month period. And initially, the initial conversations are all around kind of talking about different things that different members of the family find hard, different things that different members of the family find easy and how life would be boring if we were all the same, and kind of get them used to that idea that actually everybody's brains work differently and that that's a positive. Otherwise, sure. we wouldn't be able to fulfill all the kind of roles in society, etc. cetera. Yeah. And then move on from there to looking at famous people with autism, still at this point not necessarily mentioning autism, um, and people like the creator of Pokemon or whoever that particular child would define as cool, if you like. And then say, you know, these guys who've done all these incredible things, they've got a similar brain to you. Their brain works in a similar way. So, you know, look at all the possibilities of people with brain types like yours and what they could do. And then the next round of the conversation, then I would bring in autism and say, you know, I was talking about people with different brains. Well, that's your type of brain has a name, you know, and bringing and bringing that in. So it, so by that point, it feels like a really natural consequence and a really positive thing because sure. that brings them under this kind of heading of this tribe with this cool group of people that they've already got this affinity with and want to be a part of. There's a great video and I always forget the name of it. Um, but if you search up YouTube autism video by a young girl, um, and this is great actually for siblings as well of children with perhaps nonverbal autism. I can't think of her name for the life of me, I always forget it. But when the video is taken, she's 11 or 12, and she has a younger brother with nonverbal autism, and she has an Asperger's diagnosis. And she talks about autism as a spectrum in such a kind of illuminating way that it's really good for teachers to watch. It's one I always show at kind of teacher training type events. It's a really good one for siblings, a really good one for kind of, friends of siblings to watch to help their understanding as well and it's just a really positive video but one that really explains about autism in a really positive but realistic way and the impact that it has on young people's lives
0: yeah i don't, I don't think i've seen that one i'll have to have a look after you have to, it's, have to google it it's, yeah. it's
1: really good it's 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 one i had not seen I would said about 2 years ago and it's quite an old one but it's um it's brilliant it's a really good one and a really kind of just nice Easygoing intro, especially if, for instance, parents are looking to um, give their children's classes a little bit of information so that they understand them a little bit better. It's a really easy one to use. So,
0: when was it that you went back to to working with in uh, sort of special needs arena?
1: Beth would have been four and a half when I went back, and I started purely. I went back by fluke, really, rather than design. At the time I went back, she just started. In reception and I got a call from a school I'd worked at between finishing my university degree and starting my PGCE so I worked as a teaching assistant for a year in a school for children with emotional and behavioral difficulties while I was still dithering about whether I wanted to do primary or whether I wanted to do secondary and then they called me like out of the blue which is really bizarre a mutual friend had told them that I wasn't working at the moment and, and they rang and kind of said, you know, we're really struggling. We need a primary teacher. And I'm like, but I don't teach primary. I teach secondary. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, it's fine. We'll make it work. And I said, but I've got to take my daughter in at this time and I've got to pick her up at this time and I can't put her in morning care or aftercare. And they said, it's fine. We'll make it work. <laughs> and, um, and they did. They were brilliant. I was there for the, from the beginning of the day to the end of the day for the children, but they were really flexible about things like staff meetings and, me taking paperwork home and doing things out of hours and they were just they were just amazing with me and really made it work at a much earlier stage than I would have been able to make it work anywhere else and I taught there for two years two and a half years and had a really really good time during primary which isn't as I say what I what I kind of set out to do at all but I did primary and loved it a lot of my young people were on the spectrum though many didn't have a diagnosis most had spent considerable amount of time out of school before we got them and I deliberately took the group by everyone was like oh you're an English teacher you'll want top set English I was like no don't give me the ones <laughs> who can't read and write yet and then um, I had an absolute beano teaching kids who were really really bright but who who no one had quite got the right angle to teach them how to read and write and kind of seeing them gain that knowledge and just develop as Confident learners, and I would still say that group I had there are probably one of my kind of proudest groups in my heart that I've ever taught because they came to me often not knowing their letter sounds and left being able to read read and write at kind of a a top infants type level within a year and a half. Um, And just because we clicked and they worked at it and it was a good time and you know, but they it was a really brilliant experience. And then I moved from there to manage a unit which was attached to a mainstream school and a special school for young people with autism who had mainstream academic ability but who wouldn't have coped socially and emotionally in a mainstream setting at that point. Okay. So I kind of headed it up and did taught all the English and taught the P S H E and taught the social skills. And then we brought in subject specialists from the mainstream school to and um, to teach the subjects that I was less confident in, like ICT, don't give me a computer that might go wrong. I'm all right if they behave themselves but not when they go wrong. Um, and science and we eventually got maths teachers coming in as our numbers grew and I and I had more of the English to teach. So that was really, really interesting. And I I was really, really lucky and that I had some brilliantly interesting young people come through and children come through who'd been out of school for many years and others come through who had never written or, or read before but were all hugely intelligent young people who just hadn't necessarily been in the right environment to learn for them before and it was really interesting and still informed a lot of what I do today because it just there were such wide ranging characters that it that it really did give me kind of a whole toolkit of strategies and and, it, and I was in a position to kind of test and trial those day in, day out with a fantastic team who were all incredibly motivated to do that. So I was really, really lucky. Then I went on maternity leave three years ago now with the intention of returning after a year. And my youngest then had a lot of issues with feeding and eating in general. And still to some degree does so I'm now back very part-time I do two half days a week and dip into there but also spend some time in our in the kind of college component of the school teaching children with a wide range of of difficulties some with autism but others with MLD, and just yeah a real a real mixed bag of children which is which is really interesting as well because it's making me kind of develop more new strategies that I may not necessarily have developed before
0: it sounds like you've you've worked with um, a whole variety of uh, levels of different types of kids you know and on different points of the spectrum as well
1: yeah and and I think I'm perhaps a little bit unusual I, I know lots of teachers prefer to kind of teach in one particular type of school or Mm. one particular type of of student and I just love teaching and I think as long as I'm in an environment where I feel like the young people I'm working with can do their best then I'm happy if if I'm out of that comfort zone and I I know myself that mainstream comps aren't my ideal teaching teaching zone purely because they are difficult to make that happen in not impossible but difficult unless you're really lucky and you get the right one but those aside I'll pretty much teach anywhere and teach anyone and be really really happy because I just love what I'm doing
0: it sounds like you can tell you can tell from the way you talk about it how did it lead to you starting your own company
1: it, it was a bit by, by mistake in a sense I started Starlighting Stories when I went on maternity leave and started writing about autism and gradually, as I wrote more and more, I got people emailing me saying, "Oh, could you could you give me more strategies? Could you work with me on this?" And initially, I was I was just replying and replying and replying. And it kind of got to the point where I was getting so many emails each day that it just became unsustainable. And I was mm. kind of like, my other half was like, is, "You actually need some life <laughs> somewhere in the kind of <laughs> in the ever. You can't just keep replying to people constantly." And honestly, but I feel really bad. I need a way of like I need a way of organizing it. And it kind of came from that really. So I started the the membership site, which just gives support to families in a kind of more sustainable way via a Facebook group and via and via a portal. And kind of access to somebody who understands how the system works yeah. and access to strategies, but without having to wait years on a waiting list or be in a position where you can't afford that kind of support in the way that it is in a kind of one-to-one level. So that's my kind of passion project, really. I, I, I love it. And seeing kind of the progress that the children in the membership have made and seeing how much more confident their parents are about the decisions they're making has been an absolute pleasure since we started it in May. Um, and then from that came, oh, could we could we do something for the children? You know, what about the kind of older children? How how could we help them more? So we started the club, which is kind of a virtual social club, if you like, for for older children on the spectrum. Well, from seven up on the spectrum. And I send them a little package and a little kind of strategy gift once a month in the post. And then they communicate with me and each other via via Seesaw, which is an app that um, lots of teachers use. So it's all nice and secure and everything. And they can show me what they've done in terms of implementing their strategies and I can give them praise for doing it. And they're getting that little bit of feedback and recognition that they're not on their own in a way that, as I said, is often an issue for, for children in mainstream. So it kind of came about that way. It was never a, a long term plan. But I yeah. think when, when I started only teaching part time so I could be at home more with the little man, because even now he, he doesn't do very well in nurseries and things. I felt as if I wasn't making very much of a difference. I love my two half days in school, but they're not enough to kind of really get stuck into something and feel like you're changing the world. And I am a bit of a I do like to feel a little bit like I'm making a bit of a difference. And I think it's given me that back. You know, it's made me feel like I can help people in a different way. And I think, especially with all the budget cuts and things in education at the minute, it's it's given me a chance to empower parents to do the bits that so often are missed because there just isn't the funding anymore to to do them sadly
0: yeah and i, I think i mean there's two really great things that, that stood out for me there as you said like the fact that it gives the parents the yeah. confidence and that they're making the right decisions and as you said sometimes when you try and go through um sort of the public services that are available it takes months and months and months and by yeah. then Things have changed, you know. It it takes a long time, and then to also put together a little group that helping the kids socialise together as well—it's it's it's fantastic.
1: Yeah, and it it just—it gives me a lot of pleasure, and it 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 kind of has just become my new happy place, really. Mm. And I I love the little group that we've got in the Facebook group, and I love how supportive everyone is of each other because I think the problem is there's loads of really big Facebook support groups out there online, and they're brilliant and they serve a fantastic purpose, but then. They're too big for some people, especially at that kind of early diagnosis stage, to kind of feel like they can ask for help and know how to sift through the hundreds of comments they might get for the right help. So the membership's curtailed to 50. I never take more than 50 families at a time. And it means that in there, they know they're not going to get these kind of thousands and thousands of comments of people who don't know them as a family. Everybody knows each other and each other's situation and is kind of there to back each other up in the same way as kind of a physical local support group would work in similar numbers except you don't have to leave your house to go there if you're at the point where you can't do that at that time
0: yeah so it's, it's a lot more personal that way I guess as well isn't yeah
1: it? yeah it's really lovely A really lovely place
0: so how how did the book come about
1: the book was a the, now the book was always a long-term goal the book I guess is the book that I wish had been available when Beth first got diagnosed And as I was sat there reading all those books, most of which were American based and thinking, yeah, but how does it work here? And it's something that ever since then, eight years ago, (laughs) I said I would write and kind of kept putting off. And then I went on maternity leave and said, I'll write it when I'm on maternity leave. And then the blog happened. (laughs) And I was like, Oh, it's not going to happen now. And then literally about, I don't know. About a year ago, I sat down and I was like, "I'm just, I'm just going to do it." And I had loads and loads of material that I'd kind of stashed away over the years when I'd been in that. I'm going to write the book. And when I put it all together, I was surprised at how much I had and how little work there kind of still was to do on it, really. So, yeah, got it pulled together, self-published it, and was stunned really at kind of the reaction from my readers about how that, how excited they were, which was lovely and really kind of. Spark me on to get it finished and and get it done and I think that for me was kind of the final piece of the puzzle because it means I know if somebody comes to me and asks for strategies now I can recommend a resource that's affordable to them yeah. and know that there are strategies there whereas even as a teacher when I was kind of teaching in my classroom it it was really hard sometimes because you'd have a conversation with parents and I'd think, I really wish I could teach them how to do this or teach them how to do that or teach them how to do the other. And there was just never the time to do that, however willing I was to do it, to kind of give them the breadth of strategies and the toolkit to draw on that I wanted to give on top of kind of teaching the children all the time. There just wasn't the time to do it. So I love, from a personal point of view, that I've got it to recommend to families that I work with and families that I know and I guess that was kind of my goal of writing it and anybody else that reads it and finds it useful is a bonus if that makes sense.
0: Yeah I mean as I said I, I read it sort of during the summer and there's some it's a very very comprehensive it covers so many different strategies that it might not be aimed at, at particularly me Jude and Tommy um, because it is more about Asperger's and High function autism and, and PDA, but there's some, you know, there's still a lot of things I could take from it in the strategies section that definitely, I, you know, I could apply to to working with them.
1: That's really good to know because my experience, instead of older ones um who are nonverbal, is quite limited, really, yeah. and that's why I don't portray it as that, if that makes sense. Yeah. Because I wouldn't like to say I've got the expertise to do that. I'd want to work with far more children to to kind of to guarantee if you like that those would that those would work but I think I think the biggest thing about the blog about the book about me as a teacher is just telling people that actually they can become whoever they want to be you know either as a child or as a family and that you know just because you've got a diagnosis doesn't stop you living the kind of life that you want to leave to lead it might not be the life that you dreamt you would lead but that doesn't mean it can't be a good one if that makes sense and I think that's kind of the angle I take in life if you like and I think part of that is the kind of the dyslexic in me who was told that you know you you won't go to Cambridge you won't be an English teacher And and I did it all because I decided that I was going to and I think you know sometimes we let people put us in boxes and say You know, you can't do this. And that can be something as simple as, you know, you'll you'll never manage to make a holiday or whatever. And, you know, I said to my daughter the other day, she was she was really upset because she hadn't been picked for the netball team. And I said, you know, you might not get picked this year and you might not get picked next year and you might not get picked the year after. But if you keep trying and trying and trying, one day you can still be the best at something. Whatever it is that you decide, you just gotta keep working at it and keep working at it and keep working at it and keep working at it. And I think just finding some way to make an improvement makes you feel better as a as an individual and that doesn't have to be a big thing that can be i don't know being able to stay out out of the house for longer than you could the day before or being able to go to a restaurant that you didn't think you would be able to go to two three years ago you know it's it's about finding the little things that you can do to to make life better
0: yeah that that's it i think you know especially as parents if if when we change ourselves and and start looking at the smaller things that we want to make progress in either for ourselves or you know with our children yeah that's when you know you really do make a difference
1: yeah definitely because otherwise it just becomes overwhelming doesn't it Mm. you look and think oh i can't do it (laughs) and you can't if you look at the whole picture but if you look at the small things then often there's lots that you can that you can do
0: So just briefly there's two things I wanted to touch on that you speak about in your book and obviously um, with all your experiences as parent and teacher that I think uh, the listeners would really like some some tips on. First one is actually getting the right educational support for your child. What's your experience or what would you recommend that parents do?
1: Okay so first I'd say don't wait for diagnosis. I think there's I think there's a big kind of feeling, particularly in primary schools, that you can't apply for an EHCP, which is an education and Healthcare plan for those that don't know, until you've got a diagnosis. And that is completely and utterly wrong. So if you're in one of these areas where there's kind of a two year waiting list for um, a diagnostic appointment, please don't let that put you off applying for extra help in school because the education system is based on need rather than on any particular diagnosis. So reassure your child's school of that case and if they feel they can apply for an EHCP then they can apply for one. If school are saying they won't apply for one but you really feel your child needs additional help in school and that could be because they are coming home extremely anxious, it could be because they are struggling to concentrate, It could be because academically they are struggling to keep up with their peers. It could be socially and emotionally that it's become too overwhelming for them and perhaps they're spending lots of time out of the classroom. Education and healthcare plans are given for kind of a wide range of reasons. It doesn't need to be academic. And that's another kind of fallacy that I often hear. Parents will say, oh, you know, we've been told we can't apply for an EHCP until our child's two or three years behind where they should be academically. Absolutely false. If you have enough evidence to show their anxiety levels are being affected, to show their social and emotional behaviour or their self-esteem is being affected, you can use all of that as evidence. And you can submit it directly to your local LEA. You don't need to wait for school. So you can, if you ring up your local education authority and ask for the EHC pe- paperwork, they will send you a request form out. And you can fill that in and send it. And that will then trigger it to see whether... They give you a full assessment. Now, quite often, they'll say no and they'll ask you to go to appeal. Do go to appeal. It doesn't cost you anything to go to appeal. And there are some education authorities in the country that will automatically reject them unless you go to appeal. And then when you go to appeal, they'll write back and they will award. So make sure you persevere. Make sure you dot your I's and cross your T's. And make sure you chase. And I would say, whether it's a health appointment or whether it's an education appointment, chase regularly. As much as I hate the way the system works, the system works on the basis of the fact that the parents who shout the loudest get the best support. And the parents who don't, unfortunately don't. So ring up your local authority, nag, make a pain of yourself. I know it's really, really, really hard to do but it really does pay off. Um, And if your child is struggling day in and day out, you need to be on that ball and you need to be nagging. An educational psychologist report will then be, so after the paperwork has gone through and they've decided they're going to try and assess, an educational psychologist will then come out to school and assess your child in school. And their word then carries probably the most amount of weight in terms of what kind of help your child needs. And what they may do is they may write a recommendation of things a school can do without any extra funding. And that's okay, because they are still giving your child more support. But what happens then is if the school do those things for the six-month period afterwards, and those still don't help, they don't make a difference, you can then reapply after six months for another assessment. So if you are turned down, Don't think, oh no, this is the end of the world. What are we gonna do now? Just be, make sure the school are implementing those strategies set out by the education psychologist, and then you've got that as evidence, and make sure they log everything, so that then when you resubmit in six months' time, you've got that evidence there to go for.
0: That's fantastic because I didn't know that you could apply before you had a diagnosis. You know, Jude and Tommy both had a diagnosis before we were. Anywhere near school age, but I've had I've had so many parents contact me about diagnosis and how long it takes to get a diagnosis, and the children are starting school soon, and they don't know what to do. So that's really important to know that.
1: Yeah, and it's the biggest, and and I think not all schools know it as well, which is mm. the worrying thing. Um, so if parents know it, at least they can then go and tell the school. Actually, we don't need that yeah. diagnosis. <laughs> we can get started now. Yeah.
0: And then at, at the other end of, of the school system you know, there's a good part in your book about this. Like, what should you do if school isn't working for your child?
1: I think the first thing to do is to always be prepared. I think sometimes we, as teachers and as parents, on both sides of the coin, we try and fight as hard as long as we can to keep a placement working. And whilst that's a good thing, alongside that, what I would always encourage parents to do is to have a backup plan in their head. So if there's a niggle in the back of your head that's saying, you know, this placement's kind of working now, but I'm not sure how long it's going to work for, then have a look at what your alternatives are. Go and view other provisions, see them, find out what is on offer so that if you do get to a point where the placement isn't working, you've already got a lot of the groundwork done and that eases the pressure on you because you're thinking, you know, it's okay. I have a backup plan in my head. And because you're feeling less pressured, you're then also putting less pressure on your child and you're able to parent in a more relaxed way because you know you have that backup plan. And then what I encourage schools and parents to do, things aren't working. And you've got to the point where you both agree that actually this situation in the long term isn't right for the child. Then call an early meeting with the LEA. Don't wait until you've got to the point where the child can't face waiting to go through the door in the morning or school is saying, you know, these behaviours are so extreme, we're going to have to look at an exclusion. Have the meeting before you get to that point. And quite often there's there's quite a long period between kind of the maybe it's not going to work to this isn't going to work forever to actually it's totally not working and the key is to get in there at those steps so when you get to that point where both you and the school know that actually this isn't going to work call a meeting an emergency annual review for those who have an EHCP or and if not then get an EHCP applied for at this point with the local education authority and both schools and you say, look, this school is no longer going to be able to meet need, because that then triggers the process. And the LEA can then start consulting other schools at an earlier stage whilst your child is still in school, because hopefully that then avoids having those long periods out of school. The other thing that makes me really sad is, is when parents feel they have no option but to home educate. I have no problem with home education. I think home education can be a brilliant thing for some children and some families. And if people are choosing home education as a proactive choice, that is absolutely brilliant. But if you're choosing home education because you feel like there isn't any choice and you're being pushed into that, then I think that is something different. And that really upsets me. And I think what you need to be aware of is that if you do that, if you choose home education because the school isn't working, the LEA are almost getting off scot-free from providing an appropriate education for your child. So what I would prefer to see families do is to go and speak to their GPs and saying that school is making them anxious, getting them signed off on the grounds of anxiety and pursuing an EHCP alongside that at the same time so that they can then get an appropriate provision in place. Now, in effect, in the short term, that still means the same. They're being home educated by you. However, it means that the school and the leA retain responsibility for the child, which means it's their their responsibility to find an appropriate placement for them which can meet their need, and the fact that they are too ill to go to school is showing that that placement isn't appropriate for them and just keep nagging your authority on a kind of fortnightly basis, you know, this isn't working, we still can't get them to school, they're still too anxious, this isn't working until you have your EHCP and an appropriate school in place. And for those young people for whom an appropriate provision can't be found, that's then where personal budgets come in and you may still end up home educating, but you'll end up home educating with funds from the local authority to help you buy in those specialist services that your child needs access to. Whether that's um, horse riding lessons or whether it's, you know, access to the swimming pool at a quieter time or whether it's buying in a personal, a private tutor to come and teach some lessons at home for them in those subjects that you're less confident at. But then you get the funds that would be spent on their school place to help make sure they're educated in a place where they feel safe. So I think my big tip is, <laughs> I guess, in that kind of long winded conversation, that if you're home educating because you want to home educate, go ahead. It can be a fantastic thing. If you're home educating because you feel like you've got to the end of the road and there's no choice, think and really assess it and think about whether there's another way that you can go around it to get the support that they need.
0: Oh, thank you. That sounds like some, some great advice. and I'm sure that will help a lot of people who are in that really difficult situation.
1: I hope so, because it, it really isn't somewhere that, that anybody should be put, a position that anyone, parent or child, should be Yeah should be put in someone should be saying to them, you know, there's a way around this. But all too often that just isn't the case. Sometimes because people don't want to divulge the information, but more often than not, because the people in contact with the family often don't know Hmm. the information and the help that's available.
0: Which I don't know if that makes it even sadder.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think it probably does to be fair.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Just before I ask you the final question, Victoria, I just want to say thank you for coming on and, and joining me today. I'm sure, I mean, you've provided some really, really useful information that I'm sure is going to be a lot of help for a lot of parents out there, both from sort of a practical level of of how to help your child, but also the the more uh, when dealing with schools and the services available. So, and everything that you're doing with uh, Autism Consultancy International, the group, uh, your Starlights and Stories, you know, it's fantastic that you've created that little community and, and it really does seem like you're changing the world for, for those people.
1: Oh, thank you. I, I love it. And I think that's you've got to do what you love. I mean, you're, you only have one life. And um, yeah. yeah, I'm very privileged to be able to do a job that I love. So thank you for having me on and, and for chatting to me.
0: So just before we go, what how, what's the best way for everyone to find you?
1: If you have a look, at www.starlightandstories.com if you want to kind of read practical tips and blog post ideas or if you want to find the book or look at the services that I offer for families then that is at www.autismconsultancyinternational.com
0: Perfect, and I'll make sure I'll link all of those up in the show notes So, final question What's one thing you'd like the rest of the world to know about autism?
1: I'd like them to know that everybody is different and one strategy doesn't work for every child it's about finding the right fit for that child and that family
0: perfect all right well thank you victoria thanks for
1: joining us thank you so much
0: well i really hope you enjoyed that as much as i did getting to speak to victoria i thought she was full of useful information and strategies that that can really help lots and lots of families out there If you want to know more about her, make sure to check out starlightandstories.com or autismconsultancyinternational.com where you'll also find her book like I mentioned, Talking Autism, which is again full of great info and tips that could help many different families. I hope you enjoyed that. Thank you so much for listening and there'll be a new episode next week.